0: Hey guys, Ballistic Strength Radio is the only podcast dedicated to kettlebell sport and is 100% commercial free and is brought to you completely free of charge. So if you appreciate the show, please show your appreciation by subscribing to the Ballistic Strength Radio podcast on iTunes, as well as leaving a positive comment and a five-star rating. Guys, five-star ratings not only boost the show's iTunes ranking, but they also boost its exposure, which means it boosts the exposure and popularity of kettlebell sport. Please pause the episode now and head on over to iTunes to leave some positive feedback. Thanks, guys. May 28, 2016, the Canadian Kettlebell Sport Nationals returns to beautiful BC in the seaside town of Sydney which lies just outside of the province's capital. This is the official Canadian qualifying event for selections to represent Team Canada at the 2016 World Championships in Kazakhstan. All lifters worldwide are welcome to attend and encouraged to compete. A variety of complementary therapy services such as Cairo, Massage and Physio will be available to all lifters during the 2016 Canadian Nationals. All provided by Fix Healthcare of Victoria and Neil Hodge Photography will be back again for 2016 to capture all the excitement at our national championships. So feel free to leave your cameras behind. The Canadian Kettlebell Alliance is also excited to announce that Artur Sasik, Team Ukraine coach, will be present at CKA Nationals to compete as well as conduct an informative sport training workshop the following day on May 29th. The seminar will be held at Zuma Martial Arts and Fitness. Directions can be found on the event page at www.victoriakettlebellclassic.com. All competitors are encouraged to join in this unique opportunity with Artur while in Victoria. Lifters not competing at nationals are also encouraged to take part and improve their kettlebell sports skills and knowledge. A brief bio of Arthur can be found on the event page. Registration for this workshop closes April 8th, so do not delay. Information regarding 2016 Team Canada selection criteria can be found on the event website, www.victoriakettlebellclassic.com. Even though this is an open competition, if you are not familiar with proper kettlebell sport lifting rules, You should contact a Certified Kettlebell Sport Coach and make sure you are familiar before competing. There will be a pre-competition meeting to review the rules before competition begins along with a lift demo. However, lifters and coaches should be familiar with the official regulations of the AKA and IUKL prior to the competition. Official weigh-ins and check-in for the competition will be held May 27th from 3 p.m. till 7 p.m. Also, there will be an official CKA meeting to follow weigh-ins at 7 p.m. As kettlebell sport continues to grow in Canada and experience positive changes in the world of GS, we feel it is important to offer an opportunity for lifters and coaches who attend the CKA Nationals to come together in an open discussion and ask questions and review changes. Do you know where the first kettlebell sport meet in Canada was held? Ballistic strength did some digging. On the southern tip of Toronto, Ontario's Portuguese district in the downtown West End, a CrossFit box by the name of Academy of Lions held a kettlebell sport clinic in May of 2010. It was there that Boris Tursik and Eric St. Ange Two pupils of WKC founder Valery Fedorenko took their obsession and shared it with their fellow countrymen. Following shortly thereafter, Boris Tursik, with the assistance of Sean Mosen from Gatsu, put on the first kettlebell sport meet in Canada on July 17, 2010. Competitors included Ryan Kennedy of the Toronto Kettlebell Club and Fighting Arts Collective, as well as IUKL judge and veteran lifter Mike Sherman, a former guest on this show, and longtime competitor Estella Home, never having organized an event quite like it before, Boris had his doubts. Only one lifter was registered just two weeks prior to the meet, and it seemed as though history might not happen after all. But a little bit of luck and word of mouth ensured a roster of 15 lifters. I'm joined on this episode by Eric Saint Ange, a former competitive kettlebell sport athlete and North American record holder in the 32 kg jerk, at 101 reps. Eric hung up his lifting shoes, and is currently working as a chiropractor at Fitz Toronto, the official sports science facility of the Toronto Argonauts, as well as serving as a sports sciences resident at Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College. Eric may have been absent from Canadian kettlebell sport as of late, But rumor has it we may just see him grace the platform by February of 2017. Eric had lots to share, his own personal triumphs and tragedies, and even some tips that may boost your kettlebell game. So I think the best way to start here, well, number 1, thank you Eric for uh, agreeing to do the podcast. Um and to to be honest, up until I mean I it was probably the first time that I that I interviewed Mike Sherman and he kind of mentioned your name in passing and um and I'd never heard your name before and 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 so and you're not you're not really competing right now, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, so so I I was completely oblivious to who you were. And, but then, um, you know, in the process of doing my podcast and, and making an effort to kind of uh, reach deeper into the annals of uh, uh, North American kettlebell history, sure enough, your name would pop up. And um, what's more um, important and interesting to me is the fact that you are Canadian. I am Canadian, yes. And there's not too many Canadian pro lifters. Um, so so this I think is a very interesting opportunity and what's more interesting is the fact that you are returning to uh lifting and competition is that right? Yeah, that's the plan right now. <laughs> um so why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself? All
1: right. Well, um well once again just actually thanks for for having me on the show. Um Right now, anyways, I am actually a chiropractor now, and I'm also uh, currently undergoing uh, a two-year postgraduate residency at the Canadian World Chiropractic College, where I'm uh, getting my specialty in sports sciences, so I'm just on the tail end of that right now. Um, let's see, I graduated from New York Chiropractic College uh, at the end of 2013, and I first started um, doing GS uh probably back in mid-2008 and um, I, was, I, I started playing around with kettlebells uh, a little bit before that, maybe a year, up to a year prior, um, it was more on the, the heart style end of things so I was uh, reading a lot of Pavel Tsatsouline uh, back then and then um, just one day I was on YouTube and uh, found out that people actually competed with these things so that led me to read up more on uh, people like Valeri and the American Kettlebell Club, at the time. And they came up to, uh, to Toronto, actually, to do a uh, workshop in mid-2008, and um, since then I was sold, basically. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so since mid-2008 or so, I um, started training uh, kettlebell sport, and I've had uh, lots of ups and downs, and uh, more recently, I just pretty much have been on hiatus from kettlebell sport, but, uh, it's been, it's been calling my name for a long time and, uh, I'm, uh, looking forward to getting back up on the platform.
0: Would you mind describing those ups and downs for us, Eric? And did that have anything to do with your absence from the sport?
1: Uh, yes. So let's see when I, let's see, um, 2008, um, that's when I first met Valery Fedorenko and shortly thereafter, he actually offered to train me online, um, uh, with, uh, kettlebell sport. So say September, 2008, that's when I first started, um, training under Valery Fedorenko. So I would, uh, speak on the phone with him once a week and we kind of go over programming for the, the following week. And, um, I got really good, really fast, um, Unfortunately, back in two thousand eight, I didn't have a, you know, in person, um, you know, coach at the time, so I was just under under the assumption my technique was good, inadequate, and this was before I went to chiropractic college and really had a really good understanding of uh, of anatomy and biomechanics. So again, uh, I seem to be getting better and better. Then, all of a sudden, I guess I was overtraining a little bit too much, and actually fractured one of my ribs. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it first started off as, I'm assuming, as just like a small stress fracture, so I started having some chest pain um, on and off. Then, uh, ironically enough, um, yeah, people laugh all the time whenever I tell this story, but um, this, I was an undergrad at the time, and it was the morning uh, before I had one of my final exams, And uh, I blew my nose. And when I blow my nose, I'm pretty forceful. I I exhale quite forcefully. And all of a sudden, just... It's all that
0: hard style training, eh?
1: Exactly. But after I blew my nose, um, that was it for my my rib. And I felt like a sudden sharp pain in my chest. And um, that was um, a long time to to get that to heal and to to, to start training after that. So that happened maybe in January 2009... And again, I hadn't really gone to see a I didn't really know about much about, you know, uh, you know, rehabilitation or anything like that at the time. So it was pretty much me just sitting on my butt until I felt better. So I, I think I started training up again, I think May, 2010, 2009, May, 2009. So a long hiatus there. So then started training up again and, um, uh, started getting better. Then I think it was February 2010, I was uh, working out, and I guess I hadn't warmed up quite well enough, and I was swinging the 40-kilogram uh, kettlebell, and my back went out. So there, um, that was another two months of just um, you know rest and recuperation at that point. And that was also uh, really... Uh, a bummer for me too because it was right around that time i was invited to go to the um i believe it was the iksfa their first uh, training um seminar they had over in saint petersburg so i was supposed to go to that one and unfortunately I had to pull out because i had hurt myself
0: who uh who invited you was it uh like sergey rednev personally or
1: it was uh, alex um his his last name escapes me at the moment, but it was uh, Alexander. Um, He's with the IKSFA. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, his last name escapes me at the moment. So you got
0: a personal invite to head out to uh, the home of Kettlebells.
1: Yeah, and I was uh, really excited to go. I was getting all my documentation ready for my visa, and then life
0: happened. And then <laughs> so, life happened, yeah. Yeah. The ups and downs that we talked about. Exactly. So... Okay, so that that was going on in in 2010. And did you... Now, in 2009, 2010, were you doing uh, workshops at the time in Toronto?
1: I did, actually. Um, My friend Boris Terzik and I, we... He's another uh, fellow lifter here up in Canada, and uh, we became uh, really good friends over the years um, when, we, when we first came together through Kettlebell Sport, actually. And um, we've actually done a couple of uh, uh, courses up here on our own. I think the first one, I don't remember the date exactly, but around that time we did like an intro to, G- to GS seminar, mm-hmm. and uh, we just had a, like a good little group of people up there. And another time, um, we did it under the, uh, the Gatsu Masters of Movements seminar. So it was like one of their five-day seminars, and we uh, we had uh, like one spot where we did just uh, kind of a sport introduction. So I would say we did a total of two like formal um, seminars
0: together. And so in 2010, so you did you did a workshop, but you, but you also had – like an official agatsu toronto kettlebell meet right yes okay and and a lot of people consider that like the first official canadian kettlebell meet and i found a few notes on that kind of describe the meet and i'll and i'll uh, kind of go over them now to give the listeners a bit of um uh context Mm -hmm. um so what i found was so there's like a total of 15 competitors does that sound about right
1: uh I think so. There were there weren't there weren't uh too many there.
0: Um but you guys rather. did biathlon, and you did long cycle. Yeah. You guys also did like a heavy jerk contest yeah. or something like that, didn't you?
1: Yeah, we did. I think it was uh with two uh forty kilograms kettlebells. <laughs> I think we did that, yeah, just for fun. Wow. Um where'd you get the idea for that? Uh that was I'll give it to my my friend Boris. That was uh that I'm pretty sure that was all him.
0: Uh Estella Home or Hom, I'm not sure how mm-hmm. pronounce that. Took a uh, top female lifter Mike Sherman talk, took took uh, a top male lifter and mm-hmm. you uh won the heavy jerk competition with 60 reps.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think so. I don't remember exactly how much I did. I think what I think it was around that uh that uh that range.
0: Now you and Boris we're we we're basically spearheaded that whole uh production um mm-hmm. so can you give us an idea of of how you guys went about putting that together and the fact that there wasn't really a whole lot of precedent for you guys to you know how to form a actual kettlebell meet in canada so can you describe that process for us well again
1: i have to give it to my friend boris he's the one who really did uh most of that work, so it was mainly him. Um, but basically, um, he it, he was a lot. He was a uh, good friends with um, Danny Ox, who owns uh, Academy of Lions, and um, knew Sean Mosen very well of uh, Agatsu. So we had we had the the room, we had the space, and um, basically we knew you know a lot of the lifters around the area, and we just I guess we.
0: You saw some potential yeah. anyway. Yeah, exactly. And that was uh yeah, it was pretty much I don't know. It was uh, Did you have over... many requests for it to like to put on an actual meet? And yeah,
1: you're asking me so many questions from so long ago. It's uh it's hard it's hard to remember all these little details from back then. Um I don't know if we had a lot of re- requests back then, but you know, Gatsu is uh, you know, the main company here in Canada that okay. has that does a lot of things pertaining to kettlebell. And uh, and I guess around that time, that's when they were really starting to um, get into the kettlebell sport side of things. And they knew Boris especially, um, you know, who was in it. So, you know, I think it it was uh, Sean that approached uh, Boris, then Boris helped bring me along, I think. I'm pretty sure that's what happened back then.
0: So we could probably say that um, a lot of this was like a labor of love for Boris. Oh, yeah. For sure, yeah, um do you know much about the East York kettleball Club now is that a club that Boris uh put together himself?
1: yeah, that's him that's uh that's his uh that's his baby.
0: <laughs> is that still <laughs> going on now?
1: Well, it's not a formal club per se. it was just um that's just basically kind of like what he kind of put together and he had to just i guess just wanted to put a name to something,
0: okay, yeah.
1: I'm just saying it wasn't like a, f- a formal club that you and I know today of, like you know the Orange Cowboy Club. It's nothing like that for, for
0: instance. It's not an organization. It's more like oh. it's it's literally what we, we kind of think of as a club, uh, yeah. people with similar interests getting together. Yeah, pretty much. Um. So. Uh, the one thing I want to ask you um, in regards to that is, okay, so there's not, obviously, you know, a, and at, at the time, even, well, now it's growing, but at the time, kettlebells weren't really all that popular, um, but you were already at a fairly established level. Um, what was it like for you, you know, training on your own and getting coaching and, and uh, you know, putting on the first kettlebell meet in Canada and all that stuff? What was that like not really having maybe really a whole lot of peers to you know kind of help you along that journey
1: well there might not have been people locally as many people locally uh back then but um you know we knew of people overseas and that we were in contact with like mike sherman again for instance uh, you know he was a great resource for us uh andrew derniat as well um John Wilde, Jason Dolby, Nazo, all those guys. So we had, you know, that um, community, so to speak. Um, actually, more locally here, too, uh, Ken That's, um He's now more into to powerlifting as of late, and um, he was what, another person that uh, helped, was, I guess, part of the, the kettlebell sport, you know, quote, movement um, back in the earlier days. So you know there there were there were some people up here back then, even though it wasn't uh, anywhere as near as uh, numerous as it is today.
0: Why kettlebells, and what do you like about them?
1: For me, growing up, um, I played a, a, a little bit of a lot of sports, basically. I I, I, I sampled basketball, volleyball, uh, taekwondo, Brazilian jiu jitsu, like you name it, I did it. But I never actually. Was good at any of them, so I would sample sports, then get just just get beat up and just continue on to the next one. So when I finally came across um, kettlebell sport, um, you know I, I tried it out and then I had I I just seemed to have like a good body type for it. For instance, my my humeruses are fairly long and my iliac crests are fairly high, so. I was able to get a decent amount of rest in the rack position. So that came natural for me. And um, that was one of the things that really helped me excel uh, fairly quickly, I would say. So that was something for me that, you know, just personally, you know, finally I found a sport that I was actually good at. And um, that made me feel really good. I was finally part of a sport that uh, that I could excel in. So that was, that was basically my, um, the way that I fell in love with that sport is because it was something that, I don't know, I guess that you can say I was just born to do.
0: Do many people ask you how you got started? Like outside of the kettlebell sphere? Do many people ask?
1: Uh, not, not too many.
0: Is it? Okay. Dip- well, so for the people who do, is it difficult to explain to them, uh, the sport? Or and uh, or why you like it?
1: Well, a little bit. Um, if people describe to me what, um, what the heck is kettlebell sport? I really try to relate it back to say Olympic weightlifting. I say, well, you know how with Olympic weightlifting, there's the clean and jerk, and the snatch, but they use the barbells with really heavy weight. Same similar concept, but it's the you do the clean and either the clean and jerk or the biathlon, which is just jerk and then snatches, but instead of using a barbell, you use kettlebells, and instead of a really heavy weight, you use a fixed weight for many reps under a 10-minute time frame. That's kind of my basic story on how I explain uh, kettlebell sport to uh, That's to that's That's
0: essentially the same way, <laughs> the exact yeah. same way that I explain it, and, <laughs> that, and, and it really is in many ways that simple. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely not you know necessarily simple to to do and figure out and and uh to do well but the same can be said with any sport Mm -hmm. um do you currently coach others currently no what about in the past
1: in the past i did do a little bit of coaching um sometimes i had people actually just come over here and i would train them in person um and a couple that i would train uh, online but um I really started shying away from doing it online because um, I believe that was one of the reasons why I personally um, got hurt. It's because I wasn't getting that visual feedback or that in-person feedback to know if my technique was actually on point. So that's one of the reasons why I tend not to personally um, do online coaching. Is because I can't, because I feel like I can't do it 100% if I can't be there in person to watch them perform, because if they're just if they're doing rep after rep after rep, but if they're not doing the actual rep correctly, then they're going to be more prone to injury, and that's something that, um, you know, having experienced a lot of injury, that's something that I try to avoid.
0: There's certainly things that, even when you review video, there's certain things that you can miss in video, especially if the quality's not that great. Mm -hmm. um you know if you have a a, you know a a small uh video on your computer and you're watching it there are certain you know deviations and uh and uh, cues that that signal to you that maybe they're unstable like some shaking that you can't pick up on on video so you know i i absolutely agree with you i think it's just that's just taking your due diligence as a coach right
1: Yeah, exactly. And as a healthcare professional too, I guess I, my standards are much higher.
0: In the profession, we should be setting an example and, and it's, it's, and it's hard to promote things when you, when you feel like you can't do it in an environment, um, conducive to doing so at the highest standards. So Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Um, so carrying on that thread, is there anything that you are critical of about your own lifting?
1: Yes. And, uh, this would probably be my, the main thing that, um, has hurt me. Um, <clears throat> so continue on my, my, uh, ups and downs of my history, my most recent down. And that was the main reason why I had uh, stopped for all those years was that, um, I started experiencing low back pain in the rack position. And basically for me in the rack position, um, again it was fairly easy for me just with, with with how my body is shaped that I was able to get rest in that body in that um, position however it came at the expense of me um having uh ex- too much lumbar extension in uh in my lumbar spine versus hip extension so every time i would be in the rack position or um uh, if i would be in the uh the phase in the jerk where I would be, you know, lifting the kettlebells overhead. I would be even hyperextending my back even more. So it's a similar type of injuries that, uh, for instance, a lot of gymnasts get those types of hyperextension injuries in their lumbar spine. And being repetitive in nature, um, that was uh, my biggest thing anyways, that it was the, that um, my low back just kept getting jammed up in the back. So. For me now, my biggest thing that I um, I, I do, um, some things that I've changed anyways. Uh, number one, actually, I, got, I finally got a belt. Because for all those years, I never actually wore a weightlifting belt when I was competing. Yeah,
0: you're out of your mind.
1: Well, I was told back then the only reason you were, you were to wear a belt is to help keep your t-shirt tucked in. That was the... <laughs> or, I,
0: or keep your pants up.
1: Yeah, seriously, that was the only reason. I'm like, well, I don't know, I don't, I don't care, I'm fine. And I seem to have been doing, doing well without it, so I, I didn't see a reason back then. But now I've um, started playing around with it, and I can see how it's a little bit more comfortable in that area. Um, some other things that I've been doing is really focusing a lot more on um, abdominal strengthening, so really performing a lot of planks, paddle-off presses, side bridges, you name it. Um, I do it and really try to help um, increase the strength of my uh, lumbar spine and also to increase the uh, mobility in my hips as well, especially hip extension. And uh, definitely when I'm also performing the jerk now, I'm always cognizant. So every time that I'm, you know, th- uh, thrusting the kettlebells upwards, I'm now conscientiously contracting my glutes Whereas before I was just picturing just driving my hips up uh, just to you know drive the kettlebells overhead, and every time I was doing that I was hyperextending my low back. So now I'm super conscientious about performing the lift correctly, and even when the the kettlebells are are, are overhead and in that locked out position, I want to make sure that I'm completely straight, so to speak. So back then, I'm looking back at some of my old uh, videos and uh, pictures, uh, and if you were to look at me from the side, I looked like the letter uh, the letter S, basically, but now I'm trying to look as close to an eye as possible.
0: Yeah, I think that's, uh, for me, I think that's really important as well, and I've also, um, I know that Charlie Fernelli tries to get that really straight overhead position uh, mm-hmm. with his work as well. Um, I think that's one of my biggest problems is overextending in the overhead position. And I feel like that hurts me uh, in the days after more than my position in the rack. Um, Mm -hmm. My rack positions improved a lot. Um, I, I don't know if it's quite my perfect yet, but uh, overhead, I'm definitely having an issue um, relying too much on just hanging into the passive tissues and just hyperextending and not really keeping my ribs down and, and trying to keep my, my butt locked in underneath my ribs. Yeah. So that's one of my biggest problems right now. So I I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think, um, so coming back to the core training, do you think there's uh more or less benefit, uh, as it applies to kettlebell sport? And I know this is kind of a nebulous question and, and you know, there's no right or wrong answer here, but just in your opinion, um, training static versus, um, sorry, isometric versus isotonic versus rotational, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think one is a better benefit over the other, um, or a combination of some a better benefit than the others, uh, in terms of its application to GS?
1: Um, I'd this is where
0: de- you say it depends on the person.
1: It de- it depends on the person. <laughs> um, I, I literally was going to say that. So, um, Honestly, it it really it honestly does, and um, I can't really generalize um, these uh, particular recommendations. But um, again, for me, anyways, the way that my back is with my condition, because I I know my back, so I feel that the first thing you would want to do is um, basically you can kind of start off mainly on the the isometric signs of things so doing something like a plank uh, you know side bridge things like those those are actually exercises that are really safe for your lumbar spine and a lot of studies have shown that as well that they're a safe exercise to do but um, the caveat to that is that you know you'll be strong in that position but you might not necessarily be that strong in another position so, for instance, I can train plank all I want, but, you know, if I'm, you know, grappling with somebody, I'm not going to be in, a like, that... I'm not going to be, you know, in an aesthetic position. My lumbar spine is going to be flexed, it's going to be extended, like, all that stuff. So you would also want to train your abdomen in all different directions when you're ready for it. So with kettlebell sport, anyways... Um, you know it's a fairly you know like sagittal mo- movement you're basically always in the one plane of motion so people often you know are good at training you know rectus abdominis but they forget about all the other core muscles that we have so you would want to work you know your internal external oblique or transversus abdominis all those you know you know more known core muscles there um, but I th- definitely think planks are, you know, one of the the kings of uh, uh, core exercises, so to speak. But um...
0: you know, I think these are the things that you're saying right now are the things that a lot of us need to hear. Um, you know, because because and going back to the original question, you know, what's better, what's worse, what's good, what's bad, and um, for a lot of things, it comes down to well, it kind of depends on what your tendencies are. So, you know, if you do tend to hyperextend, you you definitely want to work a position where you're resisting hyperextension. Uh planks a good example of that. Uh and just, you know, work the basics, you know. There's there are things that we associate synonymously as being you know, fundamental or beginner. But really fundamentals are indeed fundamental and they're things that we need to do that we should do All the time, because they are fundamental. It's not strictly things that are reserved for beginners, quote unquote, right? It's Mm -hmm. not like you do it and then you move on and you never return to it. These are fundamentals. They're things that should be repeated because they support all of your other training. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, but the one thing that I think is, uh, well, it's, it's, it's interesting cause it's specific to, uh, kettlebell sport is, um, and I think that you've probably thought of this is side rack, the implications and do or do not. And, and all that jazz, what do you think about side rack?
1: Job by memory. What do you mean by
0: side rack? <laughs> I had a <laughs> feeling you were going to say that for, for, you know, for, for a guy who has, you know. A really good uh, rack position probably doesn't need to rely on side rack, and I don't think I've seen you do it in any of your videos. Um so for for me, for example, I've come to a, a place where I'm not necessarily making contact with my iliac crest, but the bells are positioned sufficiently over my feet that the balance is is good. And um the kettlebells aren't positioned so high up on my chest, I'm relaxing enough through my upper back mus- musculature to to rest my arms nice and low. But um, sometimes in in you know, in a 10 minute set, when I'm hitting that seventh minute or so, I need just to be able to take a bit of a fuller breath. And so mm-hmm. I'll uh, side flex and just drop one elbow into the rack and and stack my hands and it, in in effect somewhat stacking what the weight of one kettlebell onto the other so that the yeah. weight's kind of sitting just on one crest and right, i'm yeah. able to take a bit fuller of a breath
1: yeah i just googled an image of it and uh like oh yeah that i forgot people do that <laughs> uh.
0: <laughs> So um have you thought about side rack and the implications and what things might be going on it'll be interesting to hear your perspective as you know with your chiropractic experience and and your lifting experience
1: Um well for me just with my, with my body type I've never needed to do it Um and you can also but I can appreciate how some people with maybe a less than ideal body type they need to do that Um it's a tough, a tough question because it seems like every time that somebody does that, I I, I cringe just a little bit, <laughs> and um, you can even you can even say like um, some some women when they do like the one arm jerk, for instance, they a- adopt a similar position as well, just having the one kettlebell racked, uh, and they also kind of you know deviate more over to the one side and favor the one side, so it's yep. not the not necessarily the same, but it's not. Terribly
0: dissimilar at the same time. Um, I'm going to send you a link right now. Check that out because this I, this was shared recently by the Gear Voice Sport Union, and the article is called "Side Rack: Should You, Shouldn't You?" I mean, you can, can kind of get the gist of what uh, the article is about and the implications mm-hmm. of that side flexion with a possibility of pelvic rotation or axial rotation along the spine. Obviously, when we're you know when we're doing combinations of um you know rotation and flexion or extension through the spine it can get a little uh iffy um so and i'm sure some people you know do side rack differently than other side people do uh, other people do side rack so i mean with those things in mind and just kind of looking through this article does does that uh bring anything to mind
1: yeah, so the main idea is that, you know, you would it would seem that like the main um reasoning that they would not want to do this is because of that the the amount of rotation that uh, actually happens in the lumbar spine when you laterally flex, which is true. That's the way that our our spine naturally um works basically when you add in the lateral flexion or any motion um essentially, but um uh, I know a lot of people who who would do the side rack. They tend to alternate sides as well. Would right. Be, you know, I think that's a fair um, observation. Um,
0: I've I've yet to actually be able to to do it on both sides. Um, oh no. Well, because you know, from you know years of other training and uh, other poor habits, um, my hips are not equal. And so to side rack on my left is a little more challenging just to position my hip under my elbow the way I think it's just a little bit tighter on that side. So I can't get it open quite as much. And I, I, I'm th- I think I'm dealing with a bit of pelvic rotation um, or possible um, uh, posterior anterior uh, twisting, turning kind of thing. So, mm-hmm.
1: well. You know, in that particular case, then if, if, if I have like a patient come in, for instance, and they're like a kettle a lifter and they are doing the side, side rack, but the reason that they do the side rack is because that, you know, their body is just the way they're, they shaped. They just have like, you know, humerus that is just a little bit shorter relative to their, to their torso length. I, I don't know, whatever. But, and so that be, the, that being the reason, but if, you know, if they're going from one side and they do the same thing on the other side, I'm not as worried. Um, but again, I want to make sure. Sh- I would want to make sure that again is your back strong. That's that would be one thing I would also look for in my assessment. Is that can your your back actually handle that essentially? Mm-hmm. Because you can also look about look at a lot of people's backs. Um, you know, they don't necessarily move. Uh, Perfectly. So some people might be, if you look at somebody doing like a cat camel, for instance, lots of people hinge right around like, you know, L3, for instance, or L2. So that's a fairly common thing that I personally see. So if that's the person we're talking about and they just have, and they're just hinging like crazy at one or two segments that means that segment is getting relatively much more motion versus the segments above and below it. So that segment that's moving too much is now a little bit more prone to uh, to injury. And now, if we put on, if we put the this side rack position on top of that, and if, for instance, they always go to the right side, then I would I would art my my line of reasoning would be that you would probably be definitely more prone to injury
0: i think if also if we're going to talk about populations though i mean for but then the conversation becomes much broader so if i were to say you know how about someone who's 40 years or older should they do side rack well then maybe the question really becomes is gs or is at least jerk or long cycle really something that that they necessarily want to be doing anyways if uh, if they're going to be have to be dealing with um you know, disc degeneration and stuff like that.
1: A lot of people that um, seem to be coming into kettlebell sport, uh, it seems, are not necessarily people who are who have a athletic background. So we often see a lot of people who are you know relatively sedentary or just weekend warriors kind of jump right into the sport and get really excited and start working out, but you know they do too much too soon and their body's not actually ready for it. So we have to. Uh, in cases like that, I would have to look at, uh, to like movement prerequisites. Essentially, mm-hmm. it's like can your body physically do the things that you're trying to make it do? Um, you know, can you can you actually physically bring your arm overhead without any compensations anywhere else? Because a lot of people they can bring their their hands overhead without extending their lumbar spine, which is a big problem. Mm-hmm. But if if you know if if, you know, myself as a healthcare practitioner, if that's some, not, something that, you know, I don't see or I don't assess for it, then I they don't know, that they think they're doing just fine. But, you know, a few years down the line, then their back starts hurting. Well, geez, why did my back start hurting? It's because your shoulders were too damn tight. And that was, you know, essentially kind of the, the, the start of a whole chain of events that led to an injury. So... Again, myself, my job as a healthcare practitioner would be to, you know, to see if, like, if somebody wants to start doing exercise, for instance, if they've been sedentary their whole life and they want to get into uh, uh, exercise, that it's, it's not like, okay, let's just jump in and get you to doing, like, overhead squats. That's ridiculous, of course. You know, you have to start slow, making sure that their body is ready for the movement that they're, you know, that they're, they're doing. So, well, you know, I again, think
0: this is, yeah, I think this is part of the, uh, unfortunate reality of kettlebells in North America as well is, uh, like you said, um, a lot of people who do tend to find the sport are, uh, well, they tend to be older and sometimes they, they tend to have been sedentary for a while. You know, they start kettlebells for fitness. And they develop the, they get the bug, and and then they want to compete. And um, but the the problem with that is, I mean, in a lot of ways, in North America, we're trying to play catch up to Europeans. And the problem with that is, you know, when all the people here are thirty plus, just getting into kettlebell sport, which is basically veteran age in uh, in in the in Europe, um, we also forget that when people start training kettlebells in say like a country like Russia you know they're doing it in middle school and they're building that base mm-hmm. and the other thing on top of that is much like olympic weightlifting um you know it's very true uh, the the lifter doesn't find weightlifting weightlifting finds the lifter and when you when we look at all these top lifters um and we'll just throw some, we'll we'll drop some names here you know Anton Senko Ivan Denisov uh, even Ksenia and Valeri and and uh, you know all all those top lifters, you know, mm-hmm. there's also a reason why they're top lifters. And 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 what's the thing that kind of separates them from all of the other uh, kids when they all started out? What's what's the thing that separated them from everybody else who put in just as much time and work into the sport? Well, the best lifters in the world, the ones that we actually look up to are those who have that unique combination of, you know, they've done the training and they've had good coaches, but they also have, you know, potentially very good body types and very good genetics and, you know, uh, uh, optimal, um, morphologies for their, you know, chosen sport. But over here in North America, we're choosing the sport, right? Regardless of whether or not we have those physical capabilities or not. And, and we're going to, you know, unfortunately, some of us will are going to run into some roadblocks.
1: Yeah, and that's just the the way things roll. You know, if we go, you know, the, down the nature versus nurture route, you know, nature does play a factor to a certain extent. Um, but again, you know, I don't want to to tell somebody like, you know, what you don't have the ideal body type for this sport, you should probably choose something else. You know, I don't want to do that either. You know, but if somebody works hard and is determined, I, you know, I truly believe that they can still excel and still do what they, what they have, um, you know, as a goal.
0: And, and you know what, um, the one, one of the great things about kettlebell sport, um, that pertains to what you just said is the fact that, you know, there's several events and you might not be good at one, but, you know, there's one or two more for you to choose from. And depending on, you know, we're we're introducing all sorts of new things here in North America, so there's even more events and things, and there's mace swinging now and all that jazz. But, yeah. um, you know, if you're not good, if you don't have a great rack position, big deal. There's still Snatch. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's plenty of room to kind of explore and and, and test out those events and, and kind of find what you're good at, and that's definitely one of the things I think that... Uh, kettlebell sport, you know, it's an advantage maybe over some other sports. But, you know, like uh, like some team sports have different positions and different people are good better at different positions. You know, we have a few different events and and you can kind of pick and choose if you have to.
1: Yeah, cuz now like some of the their events there's only there's jerk only, there's also snatch only. It's 10 minutes, there's 5 minutes. So, yeah, there seems to be a lot more of these types of uh events um popping up, which like you said can, you know, either you know, really help some of these other people who, you know, maybe I'm really good at snatching, but I'm terrible at jerks. Well, here we go. That's a a good option for, for that person.
0: Yeah. And you have <laughs> that opportunity to still be, you know, part of the community, which is, you know, you know, it's, it's a great thing and it's very important. Um, so I got a question for you mm-hmm. and, uh, I, I, you know, I can, I can presume the answer already, but, uh, <laughs> the question is, uh, kettlebells to assist the workout or kettlebells as the workout. Why do you think some people will always see it as the former kettlebells to assist the workout? And, um, and, you know, we'll just throw one, uh, more obvious example out there. CrossFit uses kettlebells, but it's, it's never the workout or it's rarely the workout.
1: I don't know. It's never something I really thought about. Are we, so we're, we're now kind of shying away from kettlebell sport and just talking about kettlebells well, generally? Well,
0: kettlebells, or- kettlebells as the workout, you know, obviously we have uh, hard style where, you know, kettlebells king and there's a, a large breadth of uh, movements and training modalities that we use that implement with to uh, to fully express human movement that kind of thing, but then of course we also have GS where your primary implement, your only implement, is a kettlebell, or a couple of kettlebells. Um, but and, and so in this in the sphere of you know using kettlebells, those are really kind of the two options where uh, the kettlebell takes uh, you know um, center stage. Whereas you know when you venture outside of that sphere. Pretty much kettlebells, you know, it's that thing gathering dust in the corner <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> in gyms, right? Um, a lot of people still call it a kettleball, you know. Um, yeah, so why do you think that is? Do you have any comments on that? And why do you think uh, maybe organizations that that have such a strong opinion maybe on uh, ways to develop the body, best ways to develop the body, optimal, optimal ways to develop the body, and, and that whole, you know, functional movement, why do you think maybe kettlebells is still something that's not really, I don't know, explored that much?
1: Well, I'm just speculating here anyways. Kettlebells, again, are still a relatively new, um, training tool here in North America. Like before, you know, I don't think it's been, it's been in North America more than 20 years. Um, yeah. I think it was like even before 2000, they were very, very sparse, so to speak. So, But, you know, the thing like the barbell, the barbell has been around a hell of a lot longer, I I believe, and uh, definitely been used, you know, more often here in North America anyways. And there are a lot more um, books and articles and training um, regimens that pertain or that, you know, really kind of focus on exercises that use the barbell. Um, So maybe that's maybe one reason as what, why the kettlebells maybe aren't the the main focus in a particular workout. Um, and maybe that's the reason why. You can load, obviously, a lot more you know weight on a barbell than you can have on a kettlebell. Um, that's another reason. So uh, cost as well, maybe, might be a, a reason. You know, barbells and plates are fairly, relatively inexpensive and, uh, you know, it seems like kettlebells. There, there's always a different model or different type coming or, coming out every day, and there's all these in between weights too, and it can get fairly pricey, as well. Um, I don't know. It's a it's a fairly vague uh, question. I'm not sure if I'm really answering you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's all right. Well, I thought I'd throw it out there, and um, and see what you thought. Uh, well, let's uh, let let's simplify this a little bit. Um, what's your favorite lift?
1: I'd say jerks jerks are my favorite one that's the one that um you know I was lucky enough to uh get the the north american uh, record uh a few years ago and um
0: 2010, right?
1: I believe so. Yeah, beginning uh, of 2010.
0: 101 reps.
1: Yeah. So, I don't know, I guess that's you can say that that's my main lift is the the jerks. Yeah.
0: And you also have a video where you do five minutes of jerks for 70 reps.
1: Yeah. No, I think that was only, that was taking me a couple of weeks prior to that, the, the one-on-one reps.
0: Yes. Yeah. Both in the same month. <coughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: Um, is that normal for you to do, uh, kind of, I guess we could kind of say that's almost like a max effort test, like a, you know, you're sprinting your jerks with, the uh, 32 kgs inside of a five minute time cap, um... Is, is it normal for you to do that kind of thing in the in the weeks leading up to doing a test
1: um uh, i suppose uh i don't know anyways' well, basically um if you look at you know if you look at a a, a regular like um like a like a macrocycle essentially and you know if i'm periodizing and i know that i need to perform well on a particular day well in the weeks coming up to it i'm going to decrease the amount of volume that i do mm-hmm. but also increase the amount of intensity as well so that way um you know i'm getting my body ready for my competition day which is when i did the 101 reps so that those 70 reps that was me trying to diminish the amount of volume that I do but also increase the amount of intensity as well because I'm going at something like I think it was like 14 reps a minute so mm-hmm. that's fairly quick for me and it was a shorter time frame half the time so it was again it was very intense something like that so you know in, in that particular sense then yeah in the in the weeks leading up I definitely alter my my training for sure
0: yeah you're trying to uh, improve or at least maintain your your a uh, high level of performance but but um, get a decent amount of recovery in between by dropping that volume down and, and maybe mm-hmm. dropping the frequency down.
1: Uh, frequency maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a little bit, but I'll definitely alter what I do. Like I'll add in a lot more, um, you know, recovery type of work. So okay, you know, a little bit more, a lot more mobility, things like that.
0: What sort of training did you do to support your kettlebell sport? And did you do? Now I had a talk with Charlie. Um, on the previous podcast, uh, talking about work capacity, and so did you do things specifically to increase your work capacity, or and and maybe did you do other forms of uh, resistance training to help you um, improve your kettlebell sport?
1: Not really, and maybe that was the reason why I uh, kept hurting myself. Um, but um, most of my training, like kind of looking back at my old logs, uh, they had a fairly consistent um, flow to them. And this is a lot of stuff that I learned from Valeria Fedorenko. So, basically, um, I had you know my main working set, which is what I would be you know trying to accomplish for the day, and it would vary day to day whether I was shooting for a five, six, eight minute set at a certain eight, at a certain um, uh, reps per minute. Then I would take a short rest. Then I would do a second set, but. Much less volume, less intense, less. Um, um, sometimes I would decrease the load. If I was like to do my main set with the 32, then my second set might be with the 28s, for instance. Then some of my other assistant works would be just one arm jerks with uh, usually around a 40 kilogram kettlebell. Then move and do uh, called jump squats. But it is like the jump squats that I was kind of instructed to do at the time was um, take a barbell, put 225, 250 on it and uh, essentially just do very, very short range squats. And I'm, I'm talking about you're just moving maybe like a total of five inches. And um, it's really kind of helped. It's really trying to essentially just focus on that that explosiveness that you would do like in the, in the jerk essentially. Come, like how, how far you would dip down in the jerk, that's how far down I would go down with the jump squat.
0: And you're just trying to overload that, that movement, exactly. basically.
1: Yeah, and it was a fa- fairly quick quick pace. Um, so with that, I would do about three sets of 50. Then when I was done that, then I would go for a 20-minute run. So that was like a fairly consistent um, type of flow to my, my workouts then. So as you can tell, back then I didn't do much of dedicated abdominal work, which was a, a big no-no for me. <laughs> so yeah and uh, also just like mobility work, that was something that I didn't know of at the time truthfully so now that i'm you know I'm a lot smarter than i was i i once was uh that's definitely something that i uh i'm make sure that I'm fairly religious about and uh doing all those other things that I'm trying to strengthen all my deficiencies
0: so if you were to choose like one or two specific mobility um uh focus points um to that you would have done back then had you known uh, what would be the things that you would have focused on specifically mainly or, for, for you
1: for me anyways it would be a lot of hip extension so hip extension um <clears> then <throat> the way that I work do that now anyways um pretty much in I I the way that I do I I'm in a half kneeling stance and if I want to add a little bit more um Quadriceps uh, stretching to it, and not necessarily more on the psoas side of things. Then I'll actually put a, um, I'll, I'll kneel down, but I'll also uh, flex my, my uh, kneeled... Uh, Glute. The the, knee, the yeah. No. The the kneel side. I'll I'll put my foot up on a platform, so I have a lot more knee flexion in there. Okay. So I'm, I'm really stretching my quadriceps, and then uh, from that position, I'll. Do what's called a posterior pelvic tilt. So I'm contracting my my rectus abdominis and kind of pull my my tailbone towards the floor. So I'm giving myself like a little bit more of a lumbar flexion at that point. So I'm really trying to isolate my hip versus my lumbar spine because mm-hmm. a lot of people will cheat essentially and they don't know it is because that they can get in that position like oh yeah it's easy see I'm just I'm stretching I'll I'll you know shimmy forward and everything but. No, all the motion is coming from your back, not from the hip where you're trying to to stretch. Yeah. So right now I'm really, really picky with my form when I do these particular mobility drills, and I'm really trying to focus on the ones that one spot. So that's something that I'll ho- I'll hold that position for at least two minutes. And oh I'll, wow. I, yeah. It's oh yeah. Lot I'm lot. there's I'm standing in that position. Um. <laughs> Then I'll add in a lot of isometric contractions as well in that position. So while my, my hip is extended and my knee is flexed, I'll actually add in some uh, knee extension and hip flexion, but just is- isometric contractions. And again, just ramp up to 100% contraction, then slowly ramp down. Then I'll do the opposite. I'll add in extra hip extension and knee, knee flexion uh, contract- isometric contractions again, ramp up to 100%, then ramp down. And I do this repeatedly over the time frame of, of at least two minutes. You know,
0: it's funny. I used to do something similar to that, and then for some reason I just stopped doing the isometric contractions uh, while I, when I did all my stretching sessions. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's definitely something I should return to because, I, I, yeah, I, I'm trying to make a, a, a better effort at making sure I I – I get my stretching in and do exactly what you say there, trying out the uh, the isometric contractions and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, because a lot of the research shows that um, adding in a contraction uh, really leads to a long, long-term increase in uh, mobility. So um, I'm not necessarily doing the exact way to do it, but like um, the contract relax relax antagonist contract, those type of contractions, um, and uh, as well as the contract, relax type of stretches really help to increase that mobility over the long term.
0: Mm-hmm. And essentially, our, our, is what you're doing trying to reprogram that neural uh, inhibition of the muscle to, um, because there will be a point where it just – it, it it wants to inhibit uh, the muscle from going any further because maybe it's been trained to kind of stop in that particular range of motion. And so you're kind of training it uh, to allow itself to lengthen out a bit more. Is that what's happening?
1: Yeah. Like the way that I like is to – Is that the
0: Golgi tendon response or something like that?
1: Uh, well, some, some, something like that. Um, the way that I kind of like to think of it anyways and like kind of verbalize is that my body doesn't – know that range basically you know i don't like i'm trying to learn this new range of motion and get my body to to use this new range of motion and the way that i can get it to use this new range of motion is to actually add in a forceful contraction to that area and my reasoning is that if i do that over and over and over again eventually i'll be able to get to that that um you know actual hip extension that i'm trying to get but i can get there much easily more consciously and not just when i'm you know doing the jerk for instance so i want to be able to control my range of motion
0: i guess that's a bit of the difference between a a passive range and an active range too
1: oh yeah you definitely want to close that gap as best as you can right right (laughs) yeah
0: um, it said that to achieve the higher ranks, you need to take time to develop yourself emotionally and mentally in addition to the physical component. Uh, sorry, component. Um, would you mind describing your transition from the lower ranks to master of sport? What that was like, not just the, not just the physical component? Maybe well, you know, mental struggles you had to deal with and stuff like that?
1: Well, one, I'm actually not a master of sport. Oh. I, I never actually <laughs> formally got master of sport In practice, I've hit the numbers, um, but never, never actually in a competition. So the most I've ever gotten competition was candidate master of sport. So technically I'm not master of sport. Um, but making the tomato, tomato, (laughs) but, um, yeah, no, a lot of it is just, you have to (laughs) go into a, a Zen state, so to speak, um, yeah, basically, I remember some conversations I had with the Larry back in the day. And one of the one of his comments was like, you know, Eric, you look so angry when you're uh, lifting, you know, your face has to be calm and relax. And you know what? That's true. And actually, a lot of the, the research does show that, like, if you want to be happy and you're, you're mad, just force yourself to smile. You know, eventually you'll start feeling happy. <laughs> that's No, you know what? It sounds ridiculous, but it's
0: actually true. Maybe that's so, part of it. That recognizing the ridiculousness of it will put a smile on your face.
1: Yeah, so you know what? Instead of like if I'm lifting and if I'm frowning, you know, while I'm lift while I'm lifting, yeah, I, yeah, I feel terrible. But you know what? If I just actually crack a smile or just, you know, just I don't know, just not frown essentially, I'll start feeling better. I know it sounds ridiculous but hey that it's something that's helped me anyways
0: I know where you're coming from <laughs> I yeah. tend I tend to crack jokes uh even uh, mid set actually I had my team went down to an uh in-house meet uh actually we had one on Saturday and Sunday mm-hmm. but on Sunday I was doing my 24 kg snatch and um I was just feeling like I really wanted to put it down and I don't know if maybe I just kind of started too fast. So I look over to uh Rod McMillan uh, standing next to me uh, also doing 24 kg snatch. I just I look over to him and go, "Hey Rod, how you doing over there?" Just trying to get something out of him. And then actually what I did right then was just followed his pace and people said we were looking like uh you know, synchronized snatching for a while there. <laughs> and uh and actually that just helped carry me through right to the end. So um, but yeah, I, d- I definitely believe there's a lot of validity to that. And it's, um, even, you know, during any sort of intense, uh, activity, if you can just kind of relax your face and relax your neck and relax your shoulders and just try and relax as many muscles that for some reason are tense, that shouldn't be tense because they're not actually, you know, what's helping you to do that activity, then yep. that's going to yep. go a long way to, to getting you through it
1: yeah and you know we can talk to, to links about sports psychology because that's a, a big big field too, and it's just like the actual mental side of sport. So um, in undergrad, I actually took a sports psychology class and I actually had a few sessions with my professor too. and um, he had me do a couple of really neat exercises. So one of them was actually just to you know a lot of like visualization. That I did, so one of them is that you know what actually stand up just like you know stand up, look in the corner, but just actually go through every movement that you do while you're while you're doing your sport, so I would just honestly I would just be in my room alone, just standing up, I would close my eyes, but I would visualize every uh rep I would do every movement, and that really helped me to kind of you know picture me me doing the the actual movement so that once I actually do the do the actual movement in 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 competition it's a little bit easier like i have a better better idea of what I'm actually doing because I visualize it i understand it completely
0: so you're being more mindful of it while you can be more mindful of it while you do each individual rep exactly sort of thing which yeah, is yeah. and and i've had you know i've talked to people who said that uh it's you know, it's really not just about trying to get to the next rep really necessarily. You really do you really should be mindful during every rep because you want to make sure that, you know, you're hitting your your cues mm-hmm. kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Another one was actually to just get a pen and paper and write down the the movement. Like write down the actual description, the steps that you're doing. So that was one thing that I did. And um honestly to write to describe one rep of the long cycle, I actually wrote three pages.
0: <laughs>
1: I'm not even kidding. I wrote down. I believe s- you. I've done the it-
0: same thing. It's actually actually really hard.
1: Yeah. I, I just kept writing and writing and writing. I'm like, this is ridiculous. That I'm writing so much on literally something that takes like four seconds to do. So, yeah, it was, um, it was a really good exercise, I find, just to help just open your mind and to kind of really go through each one of the steps of the actual, uh, the exercise.
0: So, and, oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: And yeah, and just some, some other things to do, um, you know, just to help keep yourself motivated is to write down your goals essentially and write down things that, um, that'll help keep you motivated. Um, one of the other things that I did was I actually had a, um, a card that I had, um, that I had, that I kept around in my wallet. So on one side of the card, um, what did I write? It was, you had to write down the th- top, three, um, things, top three things, top three things that you loved about your sport that you play. So you write down the top three things. Then on the other side, in the last 12 months, what are your top three achievements? So on that side, you write it down with a pencil because, you know, things change. So you'd always write down your top three achievements the last 12 months. And the idea was that if you had this card with you at all times in your wallet and you can just take it out and look at it, it just helped keep you motivated, essentially, just uh, to keep going.
0: Did it help you to organize what your goals were as well? Well, for me, I have a a whiteboard on my desk. And if I don't write things down that I want to get done, I just forget about them.
1: Yeah, that's true. No, you always you always have to write down your goals and you have to rewrite, rewrite them down like every day. Otherwise, you're going to forget what your goals are and what, you know, it, it, I think that's something that you need to do. Like every morning, write down your goals and that'll actually get you pumped for the day. Um, yeah, so for me, like when I did the 101 reps, like my My only goal for that competition was to crack a hundred reps. I didn't care about snatches or anything like that. I just wanted to get a hundred reps for jerks. so when I got that, I was thrilled so that was like my only thing for instance, for that particular competition.
0: Would it have mattered what you got for a snatch after that? mm not really um I, Un- unless like... things just completely fell apart. But if you got Oof. something that was like maybe I don't know twenty five percent less than your norm, you still would have been. It would still would have been a good day.
1: Yeah, well, uh, again, like for that particular competition, snatch, snatch was re- never really my my strong suit. So I think for that I only got 102 reps for snatches. So yeah, because at the ranking system that they used at that time, um, I didn't qualify for master of sport because you had to get a certain number of of uh, jerks and a certain number of snatches back then. But um, no, because I, I I wasn't prepped really for snatches at that point I remember I was actually late to the for my flight because I thought I had an extra like flight to get ready so I was literally in the back on the foam roller just warming up myself and they're like Eric let's go two minutes <laughs> so literally I had to like run up take like take off my sweater chalk chalk the bell and uh just go so I wasn't mentally prepared like I, that was yeah. something that was definitely like a shock to me. So yeah, that one was definitely a bad, uh, bad snatch. That
0: <laughs> and that, uh, I, I think, um, you know, comes back around to what we've just been talking about. And, uh, sometimes we don't really get it until we have that very specific example where, yeah, the mental game is really important because, um, we need to remember those situations where, you know, what if you're just completely unprepared for something, uh, you know, you get called out for your snatch set and you think you still have like 10 minutes, you know, technically you're, 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 as far as work capacity goes and, and technique and stuff, you're, you're probably prepared leading up to competition. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're actually there, you know, that your mental game's got to be on. It can't just all be physical.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they, they work hand in hand. I, I think, you know, if you're mentally prepared, but your body sucks, well, Hey, you're not going to do well. And, I think vice versa. If you're like physically prepped, but your mind is just not in it, like you know your dog died or something, like something you're not going to to perform at your max potential.
0: Um, Carissa Severat, she's a Canadian lifter. She said that kettlebells teaches you patience. What can you give uh, us an idea of your experience with with maybe learning patience with the kettlebells, or how important patience plays in developing yourself as a lifter?
1: Well, i definitely say I wish I had more patience. Otherwise, I don't think I would have hurt myself all, all those times. Uh, so I, I think me personally, for me, I was a little impatient. Um, again, just because I had finally found that sport that I was good at and I just wanted to do it all the time and wasn't actually taking that step back to, you know, be patient and, um, you know, you need to recover, rest right now, rest and recover then we can keep forward, but for me, I just kept going at a hundred percent the whole time, um, which I think was one of the reasons. Anyways, I kept hurting myself, um, but uh, no, I think patience is, you know, that's it's, it's it's true that I think it does help teach you patience, but you can you can really make that argument about any sport that you're doing for 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 a long for long term, so. I don't know. Like any, any what do you? Any uh, specific questions or specific? Um...
0: Uh, yeah, we can get specific. So, uh, you know, rack position, um, your tempo, right? Um, not okay. good, not necessarily trying to. You know, sometimes a lot of lifters just come out of the gate swinging, right?
1: You know, I think you, you start with the end in mind. You know, if you want to do say a hundred reps, then, you know, then. You make you devise a plan that if you want to use up your whole ten minutes, then you make up a a, a plan in order to to achieve those those goals. But you know, if somebody who know if somebody knows that their rep position stinks and they can't get um, you know a decent amount of rep in between each uh, between uh, they can't get a decent amount of rest in between each rep, then that person might actually do better by, like you said, just going a lot uh, at a much higher uh, pace from the, from the start and with the end in mind, knowing that they're only going to do six, seven minutes. So that might be their particular strategy. Again, I think it depends on the person.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Um, was competition a source of nerves for you? And if so, how did you address it? And I know that you talked about um, visualization techniques um, and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, did any of that help uh you know the day of a competition where it's like, you know, maybe you have a little butterflies in the stomach or that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I think the visualizations uh help to calm me down a little bit. Um, but for me anyways, uh I tended to do a little bit better if I was a little bit more um you know mentally aroused essentially. So there's the the um if, are you, are you do you know about the the inverted U hypo the inverted U curve? Basically if you look at the this curve and you just have like a big uh, parabola on the the curve if somebody is more to the left of that curve they're uh, less mentally aroused but if they're too, too too much to the right they're more uh like aroused so they kind of like those are the people that are really like pumping themselves up before like doing a lift for instance mm-hmm. then if you go on the the y axis the higher you the higher you are the more the better performance you you have and the lower you are the less performance so obviously what you want to do is you want to find where your your particular peak is like do you do better with having a little bit higher arousal or are you the type of person who needs to like be in the corner and meditate before you do be, before you do a
0: performance so are you saying that most people probably benefit just from a nor- a normal amount of nerves, not necessarily complete re- relaxation, and not necessarily complete, you know, balls to the wall excitement.
1: I think it it has also to, a lot of it has to do with the person, and it all has, it also has to do with what task you're actually doing. So, for instance, if you and so task complexity has a big part of it. So, <clears throat> uh. Just if you look at like like at a meathead, for instance, just for just just for the sake of argument. Uh, Wait, let me find a mirror. (laughs) So basically, if you're trying to do like a PR for I don't know, like I'm just saying bicep curls, whatever. Those people are tend to like you know you're gonna like be jumping up, you're gonna be like clapping your hands, you're just doing doing gonna do everything you can in order to like pump yourself up, because the movement is relatively simple. You're just Mm -hmm. flexing your elbows. Whereas something like a golf swing, for instance, it's an extremely complex movement movement. So that's why it's if you've ever been on a golf course during a competition or a tournament, it's it's quiet. Because those people need less arousal. They need to be you know more zen, more calm in order to execute that complex movement. So for me, anyways, with kettlebell sports, since I had since it was something that I felt like I was good with the my form at the time. Anyways, um, I I didn't feel like it was as complex of movement for me, so I didn't necessarily need to think about it um, too much at the time. So for me, I did a little bit better by listening to louder music. So you know, before before I said I would always listen to music, but I'm listening to like Metallica or something just to help you know get my 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 blood going whereas some people you know if this was still like their like a new new uh experience for them and they're still you know not have the best technique and like they, they would be focusing a lot more on technique i you know you can argue that those people would do a little bit better by you know meditating before uh competition
0: can you describe the evolution of your training caves because some of the I, I mean i've seen a few videos and um and for the most like for me for example I have like a you know pretty much a full out gym garage but um when I see some of your videos training at home you're essentially like I don't know in a in a in a garage and there's just like you know white walls nothing really in there you've <laughs> just got a, a a a stall mat and you've got your kettlebells
1: yeah so that was pretty much how I started was just in my parents garage so my dad has like a like a small little gym area in the basement but it was never Um, uh, it it wasn't tall enough for me to do, to wear my like weightlifting shoes, for instance, while, uh, jerking, for instance. So if I want to train in my parents' basement, for instance, I have to be barefoot or else I'm going to put a hole (laughs) through the ceiling. Um, also the, uh, I couldn't really use chalk inside the house just because right next door to the, to our little gym area is all my dad's guitars. So if there's like chalk in the air and it goes on his guitars, it's gonna be terrible. <laughs> so that was one reason why I would always uh, shoot through the. Uh, I would train out of my uh, garage, so I I, I like that I like that setup. I had the the whole place myself. I can crank the music if I wanted to. So that was um basically where I started. Essentially, uh, was out of the garage and um. Then when I went to school for chiropractic, I moved to, um, upstate New York and I brought all my kettlebells with me. So I actually set up a lifting platform in my dorm room and actually had like my own kettlebell section in my room where I would train there. And, um, eventually I just brought my kettlebells over to the actual school gym and just worked there. Um, so more recently now, anyways, uh, as I'm practicing, I have one of the, the places where I work. Um, I, I work in a facility in uh, in Toronto here. It's called Fitz Toronto. And um, there it's like a it's a big, big training facility um, slash clinic as, as well. So I brought my kettlebells there and that's where I, I do the, the bulk of my training. But I also have some I also have some other weights here at, at home. So I kind of train in, in, in different places right now. So right now it's a little bit more difficult to have a fairly consistent, um, schedule with my training just because depending on where I am, I don't have access to all of my kettlebells. So that's kind of where I'm at right now.
0: And that might be essential for what, getting like a proper warm up before you start your heavy sets or, or to maybe just getting a full out, you know, well-rounded workout.
1: Yeah. Essentially. Like if I'm at the, like the, the other facility where I work, like there's literally everything you can possibly imagine. I, 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 have access to and all my kettlebells, most of my kettlebells are there. Whereas if I'm here at home, I have a set of 20 kilogram and a, an old set, old set of, uh, 24s but they're the they're the iron kettlebell they're not the they're not the pro grade kettlebells so that's also a bit of a uh a downfall there is that my technique has to change a little bit if i'm using those guys
0: Mm -hmm. how helpful do you think accessory grip training is for um kettlebell sport
1: i think it's very important um so I I did quite a bit of uh grip workout uh grip uh training my myself actually and um I definitely find it essential because the for for a number of reasons. So for one if we just look at say snatch or or you know the clean portion of the the long cycle. So you need to have that strength and endurance in in your hands in order to just make sure you don't lose the kettlebell, basically, so that's most mostly applicable in the the snatch, for instance, because for you know at least for half the set you need to hold on to the damn kettlebell really, and uh, you know make sure you don't uh, don't lose it. So to have that um, that endurance in your hand um, is huge, and I think the best way to to do that is well, you know, obviously. The more you train with snatch, the better your grip will get. But I think also doing some of your accessory work in order to get stronger and to, um, to increase the endurance there would be a, a value. Also, um, during the 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 jerks, jerks for instance, just having the kettlebells in your hands, you know it. I'm sure you probably went through the the growing pains when you first started doing kettlebells but it it hurts at first just to have the <laughs> just to hold literally just to hold the kettlebell in your hands uh in the in the jerk position because I remember like looking back at some of my old um my old training logs I would write down you know like I had to stop my set because my hand was going numb or like my hand started tingling
0: I used to I used to have that problem up until uh fairly recently but um You're- But this past weekend, I had no issues. So, and I think that has a lot to do with me improving my rack position as well.
1: Yeah, Uh, and I think uh, just the way that you're positioning your hands is is a big part of it. mm -hmm. But also just the fact that, you know, because since kettlebell sport with this, you want to try to conserve energy wherever you can. You're not actively contracting your 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 forearms in the rack position, or else you're just going to be you know burning energy. So. A lot of people, they you know, you relax your arms, and you're just trying to, you know, let the kettlebell just rest on your forearms and, you know, and on your hands. But again, the caveat to that is that now you're really um, putting a lot of load on all the the ligamentous portions of your your wrists and hands, because you know the the wrist is fairly delicate. Like I, so I think to doing all you can in order to strengthen your hands, strengthen your wrists, and making sure that they're ready for having that sustained pressure on them is vital. So doing doing all your grip work, whatever you want to do. Um,
0: and you've done a few different things too. Can you describe those? You've used a, a few different tools.
1: Yeah, I, I like, I, I've always enjoyed um, working grip. Um, back when I was an undergrad, I also... Um, I got really into like nail bending um, when I was in uh, undergrad and doing more like feats of strength, like tearing phone books and uh, decks of cards and um, steel scrolling as well. So I did a lot of like those things that were, you know, it was more like just for fun, but things just working, uh, just heavy grippers was a big one. Um, elastic bands just around your fingers and just extending your entire hand was is a big part of it too. Just to make sure that you're you know not only focusing the consent the the all the flexors, but you want to you know work on the extensors as well. Um, wrist curls, wrist extensions are okay. I never did them too 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 much. Um, some of the things that I would I I actually enjoyed doing was um, a lot of work with uh, the sledgehammer. So actually doing a lot of levers and, um, you know, radial deviations on our deviations and uh, things that I found really helped was um, um, pronation, supination work with the uh, with the sledgehammer. Again, just to help strengthen and strengthen the whole wrist, especially the pronation portion. I, I find that um, really helped quite a bit to just make sure that your wrist is um, as, as strong as it could be.
0: And when we normally think of grip training, I feel like we think of uh, everything that we do to grip something that doesn't actually include the fingers. So really gripping deep into the hand. But you've done a few cool things uh, with um, uh, Sledgehammer as well, where you do this this finger creep.
1: Yeah. That was just um, uh, one company that I, I followed, um, Diesel Crew. And um, the the... There's um mainly two two main guys, Jed Johnson and uh Smith uh Smitty Diesel. Uh Smitty Oh gosh, what's his name? <laughs> oh my gosh. This is terrible. I can't, I can't I oh gosh. All right. I the, the name escapes me right now but uh Jed Johnson is the the main guy. He has he's come out with a lot of ebooks on like drip, grip training and everything and uh actually made it down to his uh his place down in Pennsylvania um for for one of the one of his grip competitions there as well. Um great resource, um really great guy, super nice and uh you know, if definitely anybody wants to learn more about grip training, definitely uh check him out for sure. And, um, yeah, I have, I have, uh, quite a few of his eBooks as well. And, uh, I've learned a lot from from those.
0: Awesome. Has your perception of kettlebell sport changed since attending school?
1: Yes, I'm definitely, a lot, I can, you can definitely say I'm a lot more anal with when it comes to, to form, you know, because right now, if I, you know, there's like, for me, just looking back at my old videos that I had, I cringe at myself. I'm like, Oh my God, that's, I can't believe I did that. Just it's just just awful. Like I, I definitely have a new appreciation of, um, of you know making sure that you're having correct form because, you know, the way you move is everything. And if you move terribly, then you know you're you're setting yourself up for for injury. So definitely, um, going through my education, that's definitely something that I uh, extremely extremely anal about.
0: And, um, do, does it ever come up with, uh, or has it ever come up with any of your peers at school where they've asked you about it and maybe asked you questions specific to your studies and, and that kind of thing? Like, why would you, why would you put yourself in a rack position? It looks terrible kind of thing.
1: Well, that's, that's what the sport is, you know, um, really, you know, not to sound, you know, uh, like basically any sport is not, Something that the body was necessarily meant to do, like hockey, the the human body was never designed to put on skates and skate. So, we we do all that we can in order to um, help what we what we can. So, you know, I'm not gonna tell somebody who's a hockey player, you know, you know what, you shouldn't play hockey because eventually you'll have groin pain and you know you'll have. Um, you know, femoral acetabular impingement and all these other osseous changes, that's just not going to happen. So the best thing that we can do is fix your biomechanics the best you can in your sport and, and that will help you in the long run. So the one thing that I find it's unfortunate is just that there's there's an abundance of literature and scientific literature on a number of sports, but the kettlebell sport is the one that I can't find a, a thing on because I I gather most of the research is done in the Russian language, and I don't have access to any of those particular journals, or even if I did, I wouldn't be able to read them. So, a lot of what I'm saying now is just going off of, um, you know, my clinical reasoning and my experiences and just looking at the anatomy, so... You know, if you if you know somebody who has access to all of these journal articles in Russia in Russia, please uh, forward them over to me because I that's one thing that I've always wanted to read more on is all of these uh, particular articles because I'm sure that they've addressed a lot of these things here. But um, again, I just don't know the the research in that area because I just don't have access to it
0: different sports have their own different uh, you know pitfalls to them and and we have to look at uh, you know if we can balance out some sort of uh imbalance created by the sport then you know yeah that's the best that we can do
1: yeah because you know if i can you know if i just tell you right now okay so what's the best way of preventing kettlebell sport injuries
0: <laughs> don't, don't do don't do
1: kettlebell sport <laughs> what's the best way to prevent hockey injuries don't play hockey Obviously, if I, you know, it's true, that is the number one way to prevent those injuries, is just to not play those sports. But obviously, you're not going to do that. So, what's the next best thing? And, you know, for me, this is the next best thing is to actually, you know, to assess your personal biomechanics to make sure that, you know, your body's functioning as well as it can be.
0: That uh, kind of reminds me, and it's not exactly the same thing, but it kind of reminds me of the one scene from uh, Bigger, Stronger, Faster, where Uh, There's this guy talking about uh, peanut allergies, and it's like, well, we have people who can literally die from eating a peanut. We don't ban (laughs) peanuts. Yep. (laughs) So, but, you know. Uh, Okay, so last thing of the day, um, and uh, we'll run through this nice and quick, uh, 10 questions. Okay. Okay, I'm going to ask you 10 questions, and the idea is just to, you know, answer quickly, instinctively, honestly... Um, Although I may ask you to uh, give a little bit more detail on one or two of these. And so the theme here is what's what's your preference. So these should be simple. Okay, question number one. Long cycle or snatch? Long cycle. Competitions, IKFF or WKC?
1: Uh, WKC.
0: Chalk or no chalk? Chalk. Test sets in training or just for competition? in training side rack do or do not it depends <laughs> <laughs> i i will take that and and we talked about it earlier so i think that that question is, has been satisfied yep <laughs> cardio run or row both ah, pre-workout or post workout and we're talking and, and do you, what and, do you mean by that okay i'm implying supplements or, or just not, not supplements necessarily in the commercial, conventional sense, but little traditions that you have maybe. Things that you always do pre or always do post.
1: Nutrition-wise? Okay, we, we can talk in an abundance about this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so if you want to... Di- di- okay, we're going to hum-
0: expand on this one.
1: Well, if we talk about sports nutrition, um, well, if we're, if we're only looking on the supplement side of things, let's just talk only if, if we're talking about supplements, Okay. Um, the only time... I would consider supplements, is only when your actual diet is adequate. So if you have a cra- a, a crummy diet, no matter what you do, you're going to have a crappy diet. So a crappy diet supplemented is still a crappy diet. So nu- having a good base of nutrition is number one. And if you f- still find that that's not enough and you want to go to um, supplements, then so be it. But there's only a few supplements that actually have really solid research behind them. And basically number one is caffeine. Caffeine is probably one of the the most widely used things and extremely inexpensive as well. And that, that's really shown to increase performance. Uh, another one is a uh, beta alanine. Again, that'll help to um, just increase the muscle performance and decrease uh, fatigue and also uh, creatine. Uh, just to give you the, those quick, quick uh, bursts of energy, and also help to, to re- help with uh, muscular recovery. So, those are would be my three things. I don't currently take beta alanine, and even back then I never took any supplements other than you know just protein, basically. But um, currently, right now, I I take creatine, and I'll I'll likely be adding in uh, beta alanine uh, sometime within the next month or so but those are the ones those are the the top 3 um sports nutrition supplements that have the most solid research to back them and they're relatively inexpensive type of uh sport uh, supplements so those would be the ones that I I would personally use
0: you didn't want to go uh you didn't want to say no explode or anything like that
1: well, what's an NL explode? It's uh, I think
0: the recipe's changed a couple of times, but uh, I know
1: I know one of them is arginine. I think, and arginine is just a precursor is uh, one of the precursors to uh, what is it? But anyways, it's basically, just like a, it's a vasodilator, and right. it just basically you get that muscle pump. So I'm not. I'm, I'm again. I'm not. Uh, I don't know many of the the name brands i i used to work at um g n c when I was in high school and I knew a lot more about it back then where in these in these uh supplements but um again i would whenever with all of these supplements, I read the label and if I don't like what I see on the label, I don't
0: take it Well, I think they technically started the first pre workout g n c did it didn't do very well as i recall and then and then they added. I don't know if it was a crap load of caffeine or if it was uh the beta alanine and then you got that that tingle and then and then people felt like oh this is actually doing something and then well, it kind of yeah. took off from there I think.
1: Yeah, it's the beta alanine that's when that's when you get those those uh those tingles.
0: That's yeah. where
1: it comes from. It comes
0: from that. All right, moving on. Training short and fast or long and slow? Both. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, question nine. Turkish getup or bent press?
1: Turkish getup.
0: What's uh, the what's the most you've ever done?
1: With the Turkish getup? Mm-hmm. Uh maybe 40 kilogram? I think so, yeah. I think I think that's what I did. I, I don't I don't do it terribly much. And I'm actually that's actually one of my my what I'm researching right now at the chiropractic college. I'm actually doing a research study on the Turkish getup.
0: And so you're so you're in the process of gathering data for that right now?
1: Yep, I'm. I have one more subject to gather data from. Then I'll be, you know, analyzing all my data, and uh, hopefully that'll come out within the next year or two.
0: Have you been gathering you. Uh, EMG data on um, movements?
1: Sur- on the Turkish getup, yeah, I have actually.
0: Okay. Uh, what do you? How much do you know about uh, EMG work, and what are maybe the um, advantages, disadvantages, pitfalls, or you know? How much does it really tell us?
1: Well, it, it tells you what... There's surface EMG and there's needle EMG. So needle EMG is basically... Well, basically EMG, what it is, is that um, you're just measuring the amount of muscle activity underneath, okay? So with a surface EMG, you're putting these uh, sensors on your skin and then, you know, if you contract... you there's They go through a lot of these... Um, basically... Well, with my, with my particular study anyways, we put the the EMG over the muscle. Then we do a maximum voluntary contraction, which I'm actually contracting that particular muscle as much as it can. So then the computer records that. And then, um, then we do that for each one of the muscles. We have them do the Turkish getup. And so now, whenever they're doing their movement, they're always we're measuring the amount of, of muscle activity that's happening, but it's always compared to their maximum. So that's another way to kind of gauge just how much muscle activity is actually going on, because you gauge it against their, your maximum voluntary contraction. Um, there's some downfalls to using um, some, uh, some of the, uh, the, the, the surface EMGs, just because of just naturally how your skin moves over your muscles. So if you're doing a really wide range of motion, you might not get as accurate data as you could be if you use needle EMG, for instance. But um, those are the main reasons people use EMG is, are, are in those types of studies where they're actually trying to measure the amount of muscle activation is, is,
0: is uh, occurring. Last question. Okay. Training, music or no music? Music. What's your playlist?
1: Uh, currently right now, I'm just, uh, I'm going off of a Google play music and I just, uh, go on different, the, the radio stations they have on there. So, um, I kind of, ch- I, ch- I change it up every now and then lately it's more on, more listening to like something like Muffin, Mumford and sons, or just kind of a little bit more folky, but still upbeat. Whereas sometimes I'm more in a Foo Fighters mood. Sometimes I'm more in a, uh, dream theater mood sometimes i'm in a Metallica mood it it depends on what kind of mood i'm in really
0: so you're pretty eclectic yeah you could say that i've been rocking the uh the skater punk playlists as of late <laughs> oh man just something fast you know but um not super aggressive like uh like a rise against more just like kind of you know playful happy kind of stuff yeah um anyways that concludes today's interview all right and um thanks for hanging in there with me i know it's uh we're we're closing in on two hours here
1: yeah i know we've been talking quite a bit but uh no this was a lot of fun thanks for thanks for having me on i've never been interviewed before so uh it was a fun experience for me
0: (laughs) what uh do, do you know what's happening out east right now as far as uh you know the kettleball movement right now. Are you are you very up to up to speed on all that?
1: Uh, not as much as I should be. Um, again, uh, there's a lot more people further out east, like in, in you know in the Halifax area, where there's a, a lot of stuff uh, happening there as well. And um, you know, I I've, I've met a few people uh, down that way, and it seems like things are 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 picking up, which is great. And uh, but um, yeah, no, I'm I'm still. I, I know more of things that are happening more, maybe more in Toronto and just, you know, what I see online that are Like a lot of things, a lot of great things are happening in California, um, you know, with the Ice Chamber and the Orange Cowbell Club. And, um, you know, Ohio has always been a place and uh, that I've, I've gone to a lot competition wise and uh, Michigan as well with the IKFF and, um, you know, all, all those guys as well.
0: Niagara's been having some pretty big competitions too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Jennifer, uh, she's uh, yeah. We've uh, gone to know each other, and yeah, she's really great. She's got a great group of people over there, and I, I um, even set up my my chiropractic table over in, uh, at her competition last year, and uh, you know was had the privilege privilege to you know do do my um, my thing there as well, just to make just to you know work on the athletes and make sure that everybody's you know healthy and good to go
0: what do you predict is going to be your next competition and uh what do you hope to do there
1: so my next one um i well the one coming back anyways i uh i anticipate going to uh california in february of next year so again uh well john uh buckley he's he's, uh He's, he, he said it to me politely in the past that, you know, I'd better make it out to California or else. <laughs> and uh, I, I love John, so I, I definitely want to you know, go out there and support the, the, the Orange Cattleball Club. So I and um, you know looking online right now, it looks like it's gonna be the, the best one yet coming up in twenty seventeen. So I definitely wanna make that my my return back. And, uh, for that anyways, I anticipate, um, doing long cycle with, uh, 32s and as far as numbers, well, I don't know. We'll see. I'll, I'll let you know in February of next year. How about that? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You've, uh, I found, I've really enjoyed this interview. You had a lot of great information to, to share with me today and our listeners. So, um, I wish you all the best and uh, happy and safe training and um yeah I hope to talk to you soon
1: thanks very much yeah I appreciate it hope to hope to see you see you on the platform one day
0: all right thanks Eric thank you